The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. We live in a world that moves fast and we are often feeling overwhelmed with information and ever-increasing pressure coming from all directions. So it is not surprising that both children and adults are suffering from anxiety. According to Beyond Blue, anxiety is the most common mental health condition in Australia and on average, one in four people, one in three women and one in five men will experience anxiety at some stage in their life. And in a year, over two million Australians will experience anxiety. And like all conditions, that cause us to suffer, the sooner we can seek help from qualified health professionals and get the support we need, the more likely we are able to recover. So today we are going to speak with clinical psychologist Amanda Cole about anxiety. Amanda works as a clinical psychologist in private practice in Dinella and in Ocean Reef. Amanda considers herself a generalist whereby she treats people with personality disorders, anxiety, depression and has a special interest in seeing people with post-traumatic stress disorder and addictions. Amanda utilises MICBT, a compassion-based mindfulness approach in her clinic and is extensively trained. So we're with Amanda Cole today and we're going to talk about anxiety and mindfulness. Thank you for joining us today on MediTalk. Pleasure. (laughs) So our first question, I wondered if you could tell me what's the difference between saying you're anxious and suffering anxiety? Um, Okay, so um, saying you're anxious is a normal, natural reaction to stresses in the environment and it's appropriate. Um, Saying that you suffer from anxiety or have an anxiety disorder is when the anxiety that you are experiencing feels overwhelming to you, affects your life um, and your relationships and is out of proportion to the circumstances. Okay. And is, you know, anxiety increasing in our society? It seems that Is there more people suffering anxiety nowadays than perhaps years ago? Um, I don't think so. I think that there's probably the same amount of people suffering from anxiety. Um, As I said, it's a natural and normal response. Yeah. And Um, are there different types of anxiety that you can suffer? There's different types of anxiety disorders, absolutely. There's, I think there's six anxiety disorders, but we're talking about things like generalised anxiety Mm. disorder, um, obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, uh, panic disorder, um, you know, those sorts of things. And can you suffer anxiety from a, a child right through to your adulthood? Absolutely. In fact, we know that generalised anxiety disorder often develops in childhood. Okay. Mm. And if it develops in childhood, is it something that as a child you can learn to manage and then that not affect your adulthood? Or if you're a child and you maybe don't learn some tools to help you manage. Emotional regulation is like anything else. We learn how to deal with it 
um, it, as children in particular. It's, um, you know, our environment that teaches us. So if we grow up in an environment where we don't feel safe, we can develop anxiety. Um, if we grow up in, uh, in an environment where we don't feel safe and we're not taught to manage that lack of safety, then we can grow up. Um, suffering from an anxiety disorder. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so what are some signs or symptoms when someone should be seeking help that maybe they could be aware of that they think, actually, my anxiety has got to a point where I, I need some help? Yeah. So things that we should be looking out for in ourselves that we think, yeah, it's time to talk to someone about this? Um, I think probably looking at the way that it affects your life life and relationships is a really important, um, you know, it's like how how do you, do you restrict your life um, in ways that you wish that you didn't um, because of the anxiety? Does it cause you to be separate from others? Um, because actually feeling less anxious is um, is uh, it's helpful if we have good social relationships yes. and good support. So you know if you're stuck in the house because you can't you get you're so anxious because you leave the house or you know you can't cope with social situations or um, you know those sorts of things. You know you can't cross bridges or. Um, you know, climb step ladders because yeah. you're afraid of heights. If it starts affecting your life, then I think it is really, really important that you do, uh, do something to address it because you don't have to be like that. Yes. And, you know, we only get, most people say we only get one life to live and, you know, why not enjoy be able to enjoy the life that you have yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis? No, that's true. So if someone's realising that it's something consistently coming up in their life, like I... I can't go out on boats or I can't drive because perhaps they had an accident many years ago and they're now catching public transport yeah. anywhere. And yeah. So it would well, need to be a consistent pattern of behaviour? Uh, yes, I think so. It's, um, you know, it's, if you... If you um, never go out on a boat and you've got no desire to go on a boat, it doesn't matter if you're worried about going on a boat, you know. Yeah. It's like I don't own a boat, so oh well. Oh well. <laughs> That's true. So it's how it all relates to your life and um, how significantly it's impacting your life on yeah. a regular basis. And particularly relationships. I think that that's a really important thing if it's significantly negatively impacting your ability to relate well with others, feel supported um, and connected as a human being, then I think, you know, that's a really, um, you know, people, uh, I've had people um, who have or uh, who have uh, OCD, for instance, obsessive compulsive yes. disorder, um, and you know they they might have a you know health um, uh, obsession, and so th you know they they have all these compulsions, and and their families are affected by that, mm. and they feel enormous. It's not just the anxiety that they're experiencing; then they feel an enormous sense of guilt about how they're uh, affecting others. Yeah, yes. you know people who have body um, dysmorphia, um, which is also um, a, a, can be a part of obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, people who have body dysmorphia and they they feel so ashamed that they can't go out in public. And you mm. know, they might have they might have a you know a family and the family want to go down the beach, and that's the last thing that somebody uh, with uh, body dysmorphia can do as a rule. Yes. Yeah. So when 
they really feel that they're affecting their life and their interactions with others, it's really time to reach out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to suffer. Yes. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. And who can people reach out to? So they can go to their GP and yeah. come, or they yeah. can go to a clinical psychologist without a referral from a GP? They can. The The best thing about going to see your, your general practitioner first is that you can, you're um, eligible for the rebate, the med, um, the Medicare rebate, which mm. means it makes it much more um, financially viable to go and see um, a clinical psychologist or registered psychologist. And so um, is anxiety and how we feel it different from people to people? So how I feel anxious or anxiety would be different? Um Mostly no. Oh, right. Yeah. So um, there's uh, been uh, some research done on a thing that's called interoception, mm -hmm. interoception. Um, and interoception is about understanding the experience of what's happening in your body. And we experience, that's where we um, experience emotions. That's why we call it feel. I feel anxious or mm -hmm. I feel sad or because it's your body that's reacting to um, an interpretation of your um, environmental factors or even something that's happened in your head. Mm. So, uh, you know, your body then has, you have a thought and then there's a, an, a, a, an emotional reaction. And mostly, um, most people experience anxiety in the same way. And we need to be able to do that so that we can empathise with people. Yeah. So if you see somebody who's sitting on the side of the road and they're, you know, taking a deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're wearing jogging gear, you know. <laughs> you know they're not <laughs> exercising, yeah. You might think, oh, this person looks stressed and anxious. And yes. why do we know that? Because we know that's how we feel yeah. and that's what we do when we feel anxious. So most of the time people experience anxiety physiologically in very, very similar ways. Right. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of um, treatment, so you would go and see a clinical psychologist like yourself and you could be diagnosed and then treated. What are the different types of treatments that people can have or to manage their anxiety? Oh, there's lots and lots of different ways of treating anxiety. And um, uh, my colleague rem reminded me the other day to uh, that um, that all sorts of different therapy helps change our brains. Yes. Um, and but so you know, there's things like CBT, um, um, hypnosis, EMDR, rational emotive behavioural therapy, psychodynamics, psychoanalysis. Yes. You know, the list goes on and on and on, and you know, not one treatment will suit every person. It's, uh, you know, it's like horses for courses. Yes. And I, I work um, in rooms with people who, who do all sorts of different ways. Some people like hypnotherapy, some people don't, some people like EMDR, some people don't. Yeah. But we know that there are different types of treatment that will help Lots of people, but there's not one treatment that it's will not help. a one size yeah. fits all anxiety no. treatment. <laughs> no, that's right. Damn. Yeah, and I think that's important for people to realise too, because yeah. sometimes they might go and seek help for their anxiety, and it might not be effective, or might not have helped them, and mm. then realise, oh, it's it's over. I can't get any. I'm not going to be able to manage this. But probably what people need to realise is it's just not 
perhaps it's another form oh, of treatment yeah. that they need. It's like um, like medication. People will go to a doctor and say, you know, I need something for my anxiety or I need something for depression or whatever, and the doctor will prescribe them with an antidepressant as a rule. Um, and so the antidepressant that they're prescribed with might not work or the side effects not, might not be what they want or, um, you know, they've, they're increasing the dosage and they're getting no benefit from it. Mm. And then there's different types of antidepressants and there's also even in some, you know, when we talk about the different types of antidepressants, there's even different brands in the same type that will cause different effects in Side different effects, people. Yes. So it's up to, you know, it's like you, if if you're prescribed with a medication that doesn't work, you don't go, well, that didn't work, nothing's going to work. Yes. You go, well, that didn't work, so I need to go back to my GP to talk about what might be able to work. And one of the things that we're, as psychologists, we're taught to do is to make sure that we can work well with someone and they can work well with us. And mm. if we see them not making advances, then, you, you know, you need to talk to them about that and ask them whether they would prefer to see somebody who might suit them yes. better or whose style or whose type of therapy might be more helpful for them. If we're talking about normal anxiety, mm. if we're talking about, you know, I feel anxious, you feel anxious yes. and neither of us have an anxiety disorder, then we experience anxiety in a very similar way. Yes. However, we're talking about the difference between experiencing anxiety and having an anxiety disorder, yes. they can be very different. Okay. So panic disorder, for instance, is not nor a normal, if, if you like, um, way of experiencing anxiety. Panic disorder is anxiety on speed Basically, so Gosh. you know, it's like heart palpitations, yes. and which we, most of us wouldn't normally, you know, shortness of breath, experiencing choking, uh, belief that they, you're going to lose control or die or go mm. insane, or you know, this is like this internalized, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die yeah. kind of feeling. And that's panic disorder. That that can be panic disorder. disorder yeah. Um, and you've got to imagine that, uh, rem you know, like imagine how difficult or how overwhelming the anxiety must be for someone to wash their hands until their hands are bleeding. Yeah. You know, like, um, and red Amazing. raw. Mm. That is, that is anxiety personified, if you yes. like. You know, that is, uh, that it's is very intense. It's pathological yes. um, type of anxiety. And, you know, it's, it's so sad that people experience that. Yes, of course. Yeah. And also um, so important that, people seek help and seek professional help yeah. when it's... Um, but there's also, you know, people who experience any sort of emotion that is out of proportion to what they think is normal behaviour feel shame, you know, mm. they feel embarrassed that that's the way that they they are. And so it is very, very difficult to firstly admit that you have a problem to anyone mm. um, and then, you know admit to two people, you know, you yeah. go to your doctor and 
um, and then your doctor sends you to a psychologist and then, you know, you maybe you get a referral to a psychiatrist to evaluate medication and, mm. you know, then you've got this. So sometimes it's really difficult for people to get over that embarrassment or sense of shame. Yeah, especially if they've been living with it for an awfully long yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of, um, so we've talked about the varying treatments and we've t touched on medication and that it can vary and it's about per the importance of persevering. Mm. Um, what's the sort of practice or the type of practice of mindfulness that you utilise in your um, practice okay. with your patients? So I use a type of mindfulness called Mindfulness Integrated Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. That's a mouthful. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but the guy who developed it, um, who lives in Hobart, his name's Bruno Kayun, he yes. developed it and he calls it well, and people who are practitioners, MIC, we call it MICBT. Oh, very trendy. Yes. <laughs> so MICBT, Mindfulness Integrated Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. And what does that mean in terms of mindfulness and then what would that mean for a patient? How does that look when they come for, um, for, that come, they come for a treatment or a session with yourself? Well, there's different stages of MICBT. Uh, the first stage is um, the personal stage where what you're actually doing is you're learning to um, understand your thoughts and your emotions. So when we talk about the interceptive signature of emotion, it's understanding how your body feels and how it reacts mm -hmm. to situations and it's understanding, it's learning to understand what thoughts um, cause you distress, which ones don't, which ones are appropriate, which ones aren't. Actually, it's quite funny because I've done a, a little um, survey in my private practice um, and, you know, I ask, and I've been doing this for over five years now, this wow. particular program, and um, I will say to people when they've been meditating for a while, you know, clients, and I'll say to them, so of all the thoughts that you have while you're meditating, how many of them mm. or what proportion of them percentage-wise are relevant? And what is that? About two. Really? Yeah. So 98%, when you're meditating, 98% of the thoughts that you notice are irrelevant. Wow. And yet they will still cause an emotional reaction. So just the fact that we're thinking those irrelevant thoughts, thoughts. is going to be affecting it, how we feel. Yep. Yeah. As soon as, and this is why the um, mindfulness integrated CBT is based on a type of meditation called Vipassana meditation, which is awareness of what's happening in your body. Mm -hmm. And it's using the focusing on the minutiae of what the, the feelings that you have in your body in order to be able to focus your mind. Yes. So you're l teaching your mind to focus on the little things, the things that hope happen moment to moment and the changes that that makes. Mm. Mm. So what do you say to the person that says, I've tried meditation, or they might come to you for anxiety, <laughs> I've tried meditation. I'm too busy for meditation because I've got a lot of friends that go, I'm too busy to be able to sit still. For, I can't sit still. And it's and I feel quite, having done teaching, I get shocked in, you know, we expect little ones to sit still. And I think, and then when you have adults that go, I can't sit still for yeah. a minute even, you know. Yeah. I, 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 my, my question usually is how long do you sit still watching television? Oh, Yes. So if someone was to say, yes, I do, what's the difference then? Why are we so able to sit 
in front of a television and yet when we need to sit and be still in our own self, we find it so because, hard. Because when you're sitting watching television or a movie or whatever, your focus is external. Ah, so we don't like looking inward anymore, no, do we? No, we don't because that's where our suffering happens. Ah, okay. The thing is that Buddha said, you know, we all suffer, all living beings suffer. Mm. That is the nature of life. That's life. And you can't avoid you can't avoid pain, but you can avoid suffering because suffering is an internal um, process. Yes. It's how we interpret what something means to us that causes us suffering. Yeah. And so if you're um, focusing internally and you feel you have no control over what's happening internally and you're actually getting into what's happening, yes. if you're following your thoughts down the rabbit hole, oh, you know, so-and-so said such-and-such such to me yesterday, that means to me blah, 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 oh, there's an emotional reaction. But if you sit there and say so-and-so said such-and-such such to me yesterday and you just let that thought go, mm. then there is no reaction. So Because you're no... emotionally not ruminating and that's, that's not exactly... allowing the effect of your... Yeah, so yeah. there is no suffering. Yes. So that's the importance of mindfulness and how it can help us really essentially, isn't it? Well, it, it is that, but it also, um, uh, you know, research over the last... Well, research on mindfulness practice started in the 70s. Um, 1970s and has been ongoing and there's been a lot of research into the effects of mindfulness to date and one of the things that we know is that the right uh, um, hemispheric amygdala which is the part of the brain that looks for threat in the environment in people who meditate um, even if you only do 15 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day that part of the brain actually decreases in size the longer you meditate the more likely it is that the frontal lobe starts to have stronger connections with the amygdala so not only does the amygdala shrink shrink and you have less reactivity mm. but also you have more control control over it because it's the frontal lobe that controls those uh, that reaction mm. or can moderate that reaction. We also know that the parts of the brain called the default mode network, which is the part of the brain where we um, understand who we are and how we fit in society and how other people see us, mm. um, remember our lives, knowing our emotions, that part of the brain has less activity and less connections in people who meditate um, for longer terms. And um, we know that that part of the brain also moderates um uh, helps to moderate uh, depression as well. So not only is it anxiety that is positive, has a positive, is positively impacted by people meditating. It's also um, also depression. Okay. So is is meditation then good for everyone, or is it something that really it is good for some people and not necessarily good for others? And most people can meditate. Um, the problem is that it is not helpful for people who have had periods of psychosis in their life. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there we do know that, that there have been some um, some re there has been some research done on people who have active uh, well treated medically treated um, medication treated psychosis who have been able to meditate for short periods of time but usually 
It's something like progressive muscle relaxation that focuses on the body and the relaxation, um, stretching and relaxing muscles muscles, in the body. Um, And they are able to do that for short periods of time with supervision. Um, And that has been found to be helpful for people with psychosis. But meditating for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour is not a good idea for people in that situation. Do you think we'll get to a point where um, doctors are prescribing meditation or mindfulness? Because it sounds like it's good for our brains and it's good for our own self-regulation of our emotions. I think we've already gotten to that stage, to be honest. You know, I mean, doctors these days regularly will... Um, or there are some doctors, not every yes. all doctors, but some doctors will regularly um, preferentially refer to um, a mindfulness practitioner. But then there are also others who will preferentially just, um, rather than prescribe medic- medication, um, refer someone to a psychologist for treatment anyway, yeah. regardless of what type of treatment they do. No, I didn't tell you ask you this question, Briar, but... What about, what do you feel, I've got friends that go to the chemist and they buy these, oh, you know, when I'm really anxious I use these uh, little drops. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what's your advice? With Is it is that just working on, um, pl- is that placebo, all these little well, drops I don't know, and potions? I, or? I, I don't know because I don't know the research yes. on that. But to me it comes down to this. It doesn't matter whether it's a placebo effect, to be honest. Yes. If it helps. It helps. Yes, because I've seen people even wear bands, you know, bands around there. Yeah, but that is actually a prescribed treatment. That's a part of doing something like um, dialectical behavioural therapy is, um, is, that is the distraction. Tapping? No, no dialect, that's, a, that's um, EFT. EFT, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, no, the, the dialectical be, uh, behavioural therapy is a treatment that we use for people who have... Um, uh, difficult to treat personality disorders. So people with um, borderline personality disorder, for instance, have the highest level of it. Well, this is um, some research that I read some years ago, so it might be superseded by now. But at that time, it was my understanding that um, people who had borderline personality disorder actually had the highest levels of anxiety than any um, population of people, even people who had um, anxiety disorders, wow. so their and, anxiety and was even when even when they're asleep. That's frightening. Yeah. So when you think about that, you know, anything that can distract you from um, from self harm, for instance, has to be helpful. So really, if it makes you feel better then keep doing whatever. And that if that's exercise, because some people love to exercise and that yeah. makes them self-regulate yeah. and self-manage yeah. their emotions, whatever you feel in your heart is working for for, for you yeah. and it's not doing harm to yourself. Or anybody else. Or anybody else, then don't feel... And so for my friend that's using the drops and they work... If that works, go for it. Good for Keep her. Keep going. Knock, <laughs> knock your socks off. That's right. Um, I do think that a myth about mindfulness is that mindfulness is merely the attention um, uh, to the here and now. Um, that is that is what mindfulness is, but it takes a lot of practice to be able to do that. Mm. Um, the the skills that we need 
to, in order to be able to do that um, are the skills that we acquire in meditation. Um, there is going to be very little change in the brain if the only thing that you're doing is um, focusing on the here and now when you're out watering the garden or, mm. you know, having a shower or something like that. Mindfulness isn't necessarily about being aware of what's happening externally. Well, mindfulness is, but meditation is about... Mindfulness is about objectivity, mm -hmm. right? So it's observing what's happening in the here and now, but doing it in a way that is objective, mm. not causing you suffering. Right. And that's the difference. It's about being in that moment, but not suffering while you're in that moment. Mm. Okay, so that's good to know. And are there some one or two ways that we can all um, reduce the feelings of anxiousness that we can walk away with today, people listening to this podcast episode that they could bring into their lives today that could make a difference to them? Um, I think spending 15 minutes a day objectively observing your thoughts and what happens in your body objectively it being the main um, the main word there, um, and doing that in a peaceful and calm way. I mean, we know that that reduces the size of the right amygdala, which is the part of the brain that looks for threat. Mm. Um, and if you're looking for something that is going to um, allow you to do that, uh, to reduce the the size of your amygdala, then whew, that's long-term stuff right there. Yes. And if you overuse the amygdala, so the, the benefit of mindfulness is to reduce the amygdala and um, help yourself regulate, self-manage, be calm, be still. But people that don't do that and are continually living in the fight, fight, how, what's the long-term effect on that? It does increases the size of the amygdala, but it also decreases the size of the um, hippocampus, the part of the brain that um, regulates attention and also helps shunt memories. So it's more difficult to concentrate. It's harder to um, it's harder to remember things. But also, um, we know that in long-term meditators that. Um, not only does the amygdala shrink, but the blood pressure is uh, lowers and also the cortisol lowers in the body. And cortisol can cause all sorts of damage to the immune system and, and that sort of thing. So um, if you can, you know, have that significant increase in health benefits, mm. um, one of the things that happened to me was within a very short period of time, um, I was having my blood pressure taken every couple of weeks um, in a very stressful environment mm. when uh, I first started doing this program and I found within a very short period of time that I would go into that stressful environment and my blood pressure would have lowered. So the, there was actually a, a, you could see pre and post mm. um, the different levels of blood pressure that I had. So it sounds like um, mindfulness practice meditation can really affect your brain health, your mental health, but overall your it's quality of life and your physical, physical health. health. It's yeah. sort of yeah. 
And I suppose that's why so many people, when you hear of, um, I've been listening to some podcasts of some very powerful, like the Tony Robbins of the world, they all prescribe the bene- to the benefits, benefits. of mindfulness yep. practice, yep. meditation in their life. And, yep. you know, they, they do it for the power of their mind, their body, their soul, yep. their spirit, and uh, their walking testament to if you want to operate at a level of where they're at, they're they're pretty religious with how they yeah, do it, how yeah. they practice it in their yeah. life. Yeah. And my husband and I get up every morning and meditate together. That's uh, yeah. we get up, we have a cup of tea and eat our breakfast and then we spend half an hour meditating together before we go off to work. And yeah. you know, it's nice to have that um, routine and yeah, and connection. So not only connection to yourself but connection to others. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that's really, really important to do when you meditate is to remember about compassion. Um, you know, when I sit down to meditate, and this is a very important point I think about meditation, is that when I sit down to meditate, the first thing that I remember is that when I'm meditating, it's an act of compassion for myself mm. but also it's an act of compassion for others because the better I am, the less emotionally reactive, the better I um, can negotiate with people, the better social skills that I have, the less anxiety I have, etc., cetera, et cetera, um, the easier it is to have better relationships with others. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been doing this for five years and my husband started meditating three weeks ago. So watch this space. Watch this space. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you to Amanda Cole for giving her time and sharing her knowledge. And to learn more about clinical psychologist Amanda Cole, visit icp.org.au. If you're concerned about your anxiety, please speak to a GP or connect with Beyond Blue at beyondblue.org.au. You've been listening to MediTalk, a podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You can follow MediTalk podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, please take a minute to subscribe, rate and review this podcast via iTunes or your podcasting app. If you have any health topics you would like to hear discussed, please email them to danae at meditalk.com.au. Thanks for listening.